The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we live and how we work. My guest for this episode is Marriott CEO, Tony Capuano. These last two years have been some of the hardest ever for Marriott International. Like other travel and leisure companies, they were forced to shut hotels and lay off workers due to the pandemic. And then last year, Arnie Sorensen died. He had been Marriott's longtime and much beloved CEO, and he left some enormous shoes to fill. Tony Capuano stepped in as only the fourth leader in Marriott's 95-year history. His mandate, navigate a global crisis and keep employees and travelers coming back to Marriott's nearly 8,000 properties worldwide. I spoke to Tony on the one-year anniversary of his becoming CEO, and to start us off, I asked what his first year had been like. Here's our conversation. The last year has been bittersweet. Uh, I love this company deeply. It's an honor and a privilege to lead this company, but it's not lost on me that I'm in this role because of the, the tragic and unexpected loss of my friend and, and mentor, Arnie. Um, I'm not sure any of us were prepared for it. We knew he had a tough fight in front of him, uh, but we absolutely thought he was coming back to us. And it was a, a, a terrible blow obviously to his family, to his extended Marriott family, and I think to the industry more broadly. We've had to balance um, grieving over his loss with the realities of the pandemic and the impact that it's had both on our, our industry and our business. When you're taking over from a CEO who is so widely known, branded with the company, someone that you worked with for a very long time, how do you step into those shoes? At what point do you start saying, I now need to start doing things as the CEO versus carrying out what Arnie already had in place? But almost from day one, I'm sure we'll get the chance to talk about Arnie a little bit. There are a variety of lessons I had the privilege to learn during my 25 years working with him. One of those, though, he used to talk quite often about someday, uh, whoever his successor was would probably have an easier time following him than he had following Bill Marriott, a, a real icon in the industry. And so he talked at length about when he was privileged to be appointed the first non-family member CEO, he didn't try to be Bill Marriott. He certainly uh, was guided by Mr. Marriott's wisdom and advice, but he could only be Arnie. He couldn't be Mr. Marriott. And I think I've, I've tried to carry that forward. I'm not Arnie, I've got different style, but certainly his focus on putting our people first, on taking care of our guests, of being cognizant of the, the, the challenges that our owners and franchisees face in the face of the pandemic, those are good guiding principles for me as I took the reins uh, a year ago. Let's talk about some of those challenges, and then I would love to get back to talk a little bit more about Arnie and the transition. This has been a obviously incredibly challenging two years, but Marriott is making a number of plans for what you see as, as an expansion, if I'm not mistaken. You've got about uh, 200,000 rooms under construction right now. 
Where is the growth? How do you see uh, the, the world opening up for Marriott? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that broadly, I am enormously optimistic about the future of travel and tourism, and certainly the future for Marriott. I think we've learned a few lessons over the last two years. And it's interesting, you hear so many folks in the industry talk about how leisure demand has been leading the recovery. And while that is certainly true, that is not a pandemic-specific phenomenon. If you look back at the couple of years prior to the start of the pandemic, leisure demand was actually growing about four times more rapidly than what we were seeing in terms of business demand. And so as I think about the future, continuing to grow our portfolio in leisure destinations, continuing to think about our product offerings and our service offerings, not only to be focused on leisure desks, but also to recognize that trip purpose is blending before our eyes. Uh, you're seeing more and more folks who are combining both business trips and leisure trips into a single trip. And as a result, they have different needs even from day to day during their visit. They may spend Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday wearing the hat of a business traveler. And come Friday, they may pivot, take off their, their dress shoes, put on flip-flops and become more of a leisure travel. And our products have to be prepared for that. And certainly our service delivery has to be prepared for that evolution. So let's talk about both those. First, you said that the leisure was building up even before the pandemic. Did you see a change in how people were traveling for business or was it just that there was a boom in leisure? I think more the latter. Mm -hmm. I think we saw a little bit around the edges, a change in how they traveled for business, but we really just saw this explosive growth in an appetite for leisure travel. And it, it influenced some of our, our strategic moves. Our entry into all-inclusive, for instance, was something we initiated long before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. But it's obviously a strategic decision we made that has served us well. How does it change how you build your hotels or, or, or how they're run or what kind of services you have to provide? Uh, does it change anything or is it more just a matter of understanding that a guest is changing his or her own mindset? I've traveled for business for the entirety of my 35-year career. I can pack a rollerboard bag for a week trip to Asia in my sleep. And so to pivot to this blended trip purpose, even for me, was a bit of an adjustment. But now that I've done it a few times, other than having maybe to be a bit more thoughtful about what and how you pack, it's relatively seamless. As it relates to product, there are some, maybe a few pivots, uh, but I think it's more about service delivery and the offerings that we provide to a guest whose trip purpose might evolve during the course of their visit. Tony, going back to this question about leisure and, and business travel, with about 20% of your revenue coming from meetings historically, are you able to move towards a more leisure or blended leisure business world fast enough for the business to be okay? Well, we think so. My answer might be differently if my point of view was that business travel was evaporating permanently or group mm -hmm. business was never coming back. But if you heard some of the statistics we shared last week on our fourth quarter earnings call, uh, you look at both business travel and group travel. In the fourth quarter, they were down about 30% as compared to the fourth quarter of 2019. But that was a 10 or 11 percentage point improvement over quarter three. So while business and group have not come back as rapidly as we would like, 
make no mistake, we are seeing steady recovery in each of those segments. One of the things you pointed out also was that you are seeing steady recovery, but a different kind of recovery, that a lot of these bookings are happening almost last minute. Is that a pandemic-related change, or do you see that as being the new way group travel happens? It's a good question. I, I suppose if you invite me back two or three years from now, I'll have a graph for you and we can track it. Uh, we saw booking times shorten dramatically in the early days of the pandemic. As recovery has commenced, we have seen them incrementally start to lengthen. Uh, we're not back to the booking windows we saw in 19, but our, our expectation is we'll continue to see those windows lengthen a bit. As the largest uh, hotel company in the world, you are able to see how different countries are reacting in different ways, how consumers are reacting in different ways. Is this a global return to travel or are you seeing uh, uh, regional or geographic differences in how people are embracing travel or leisure? As I think you know, we've got a footprint in about 140 countries. And because our business is one that in effect sells our inventory over again each and every day, we've got reams and reams of empirical data that help us discern the trends by market. And so I'll give you a few examples. During our second quarter earnings call, we talked with great enthusiasm about the fact that business in greater China was back. Across business, leisure, and group, we were above 2019 levels. However, if you compare that with our fourth quarter earnings call, China was the only major market where we didn't see sequential quarter over quarter improvement in revenue per available room. Why? The government there has taken a, a much more aggressive zero COVID approach. And so you've seen instances where 100 cities of significance are closed for a period of time. You contrast that with a market like the UAE, which has been quite aggressive in reopening. And our data for the fourth quarter, market performance and demand in the UAE in the fourth quarter we're meaningfully ahead of where we were in 2019. And so we see ebbing and flowing as markets think about how they're going to reopen. The thing that gives us so much optimism, though, Dan, is as well as we've recovered over the last couple quarters, that recovery has been almost entirely on the shoulders of domestic travel. And now we get quite enthused as we see more and more borders opening. And we think about the prospects of cross-border travel accelerating that, that momentum. And what's really exciting, even some of the markets that were most aggressive in locking down in the early days of the pandemic, Australia, New Zealand, the Cayman Islands, they're all starting to reopen. And I think that's really great news for our industry and our business. As business and leisure travel blend, do you expect hotel bookings to drop and homes and villa bookings to rise? It's a great question. I mean, our, we launched a homes and villas business before the, the unfolding of the pandemic. In 2019, I think round numbers, we had about 3,000 global listings. We saw that business and the size of our platform grow exponentially. During the pandemic, we're, I think, about 60,000 listings today. We hear from our customers that for very specific trip purposes, a full home is a better solution for them. It might be a multi-generational vacation, it might be a family reunion where they want common spaces within their accommodations to, to mix with each other. 
And so we want to keep them in that Marriott ecosystem. But we also hear loud and clear from our customers. They like the staffing levels we have in our hotels. They like the availability of room service and doormen and business centers. And so I think what we hear from our guests, give me the sort of accommodation I want for my wide range of trip purposes. And the, the launch of Marriott Homes and Villas is just another platform to try to accommodate one type of trip purpose. We're gonna take a quick break. Stick around for more with Tony Capuano. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Marriott CEO, Tony Capuano. Marriott's a huge business and no surprise, the great reshuffle is having a huge impact on how they run their business. I asked Tony how he's dealing with the new demands from employees it's impacting us in two very distinct ways. If the above property level, so not our frontline associates in the hotels, but in regional offices or in our headquarters in Washington, I think we are embracing the fact that office work is evolving and changing. I don't know that we'll ever get back to Monday through Friday in the office every day. I think we believe strongly that in-person interaction among our associates helps us strengthen and nurture our culture. It allows for mentoring. It allows for creativity and collaboration. And so you'll see more and more of our above property folks coming back to the office. At the same time, you really can't work remotely in a hotel. We are in the service business. We're in the business of taking care of our guests. And so at the property level, we have seen, I think, a bit of the, the confidence in the travel and tourism sector as a, as a terrific industry to grow a career has been shaken a little bit by the events of the last two years. And it's incumbent on us at Marriott. It's incumbent on my colleagues and the other hospitality companies. And it's incumbent on organizations like the American Hotel and Lodging Association to do everything we can to refresh our narrative and remind folks that it's an amazing industry. It's a fun industry. And it's an industry where real careers can be built. More than 50% of our general managers started in hourly positions. 
and, and the ability to build those long careers. I'll be with our, our communications people later this week filming a congratulatory video for one of our general managers who's celebrating his 50th anniversary with the company. And so I think getting those stories out there, helping prospective future associates understand why this is such an exciting business and why Marriott is such a compelling place to work is a really important priority for us. And does that work? Does that sell work? I mean, if you look at some of these stats, Gen Z is changing jobs faster than any generation. I think the average is something like two years. Are you finding that people are saying, yes, I, I, I like what you're saying. I want to invest my career and my life with Marriott? Or are, are they pulling back a little bit? Not everyone. But when we get the chance to really talk in detail, we do see a lot of folks that are excited about that. And to your point, while you saw extraordinary job loss in the early days of the pandemic, it should not be lost on any of us that uh, the last jobs report that came out for the U.S., I think it was 150 or 180,000 of the jobs that were created were in the travel and tourism sector. So I think it's a sector that is of great appeal. And I think those that are drawn to that, um, they've got some decisions to make about, do I, I want a job or do I want a place that if I really enjoy the industry and the, the culture and the values of my employer align with me? Is it a place that I can reasonably believe I've got opportunities for upward mobility and for career growth? And I think Marriott really checks all of those boxes. Interesting. So it sounds like you are looking for people who are already inclined to want to work in this space, who have some kind of love for it or desire to be around guests. And that makes the sell easier then. Because of all the job loss we saw, and, you know, we, I think last year, just in the U.S., we hired more than 50,000 new associates. Almost by definition, not all of those associates necessarily had deep experience in service or in hospitality. It's one of the reasons our robust training programs, our online training platforms that we offer our associates are so valuable because the ones that express an interest in the industry but don't necessarily have a great deal of experience We've got a, a terrific toolbox of developmental tools to help them get up the learning curve quickly. You are not just a CEO overseeing your own employees. You have franchisees and owners who have their own staffs that they have to motivate, they have to hire for. Are you finding that you have to bring these franchisees over to understand what this new world of work looks like or how to entice people to come back in, or do they just get it? They get it. We are very deliberate in the partners that we grow with, and it goes well beyond their financial capabilities. We want to align ourselves with partners who embrace some of Marriott's core values about putting people first and providing genuine care to our guests. What I will tell you, though, is because of the nature of our business model, as you describe it, it is critical that Marriott leaders around the world, when we're making decisions, we've always got to evaluate those decisions really through three distinct lenses. How will this decision impact our associates? How will this decision impact our guests? And how will this decision impact our owner community? And it is sometimes a complex riddle. And uh, we're certainly not perfect, but I think the team around the world understands we've got to try to thread the needle and make decisions about our business that reflect our, our focus and our care for each of those three critical constituencies. Antonio, are those critical constituencies, is that stack ranked? Do you go through it one by one? 
how we're meeting each one of these? For almost every decision we make, we've got folks around the table that that almost acts as a proxy advocate for each of those constituents. And so someone will tee up an idea and we'll have several of our leaders say, I think the owner community's reaction if we go that route will be A. And then we'll have our HR team, our colleagues in HR, chime right in and say, the potential impact of a decision like that to our workforce, to our associates is something else. And then we'll have our consumer insights team who are talking to our guests every day saying, I, I think I would not make that decision because this would be the potential implications of that decision on how our guests feel about us and their loyalty to our company. Wow. Like you're running the UN Security Council. You got to balance all of these various parties out and try to figure out where- I'm not sure it's that weighty. I've always characterized it that every morning, all of the Marriott leaders show up and there's a Rubik's Cube on our desk. And we've got to try to solve that, that Rubik's Cube around some of these important decisions to make sure we're considering the implications to all three of those groups. Got it. All right. Tony, you've been very vocal on LinkedIn about a number of different areas. And it's been interesting to me to follow you because I'm used to CEOs having a voice about one, two topics. And I see you really covering a bunch of areas. So you've talked about uh, food insecurity, human trafficking awareness, LGBTQ+, youth homelessness, COVID-19 vaccine encouragement, military veteran appreciation, civic engagement, and anti-racism and climate change concerns. Would love to understand how you think about when is the right time to bring your voice into a conversation, where you think it is the role of the CEO or just your role personally to say, I'm taking a stance on, on these particular issues. Yeah, well, I, let me start, Dan, maybe at the risk of giving you a bit of a commercial. As a newly seated CEO, LinkedIn has been such a great platform for me, particularly in the early days of my tenure when so many uh, borders were locked down. And I was trying to communicate with our associates around the world, but didn't necessarily have the luxury of getting out there and shaking hands and giving hugs and meeting with our folks face to face. I can tell you that when these issues come up, I, I convene sort of my informal counsel of my colleagues and we talk about it. I tend to use a few filters if it is an issue that I think impacts a broad swath of our associates around the world, uh, I think it's important they know where the company stands. There have been instances and issues that I didn't necessarily thought made sense, and I may deal with them um, from a personal perspective, but not on the Marriott platform. But when you think about the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of folks that put a Marriott name badge on every morning when they go to work, They care deeply about what our company stands for. And many of the issues you describe, we've got innumerable number of associates that are passionate about those issues. And I think it strengthens their commitment to the company when they know the company really stands for something of substance. And and that's so different than the way CEOs used to operate. I was talking to a CEO of a large tech company recently who said, CEOs who have had to take over during this pandemic are a different kind of CEO. We've had to deal with thinking about employee health and about not just thinking about, but actually acting in a very forceful way on racial issues, climate change issues. We have to not just talk at our employees. They expect us to listen back or else they're going to quit. They are going to the great resignation, the great reshuffle. This is very real. And this goes back to where we started this whole conversation. Mm -hmm. Because of the environment, do you have to be a different kind of leader than even Arnie was? Well... 
I, I'd say two things. Number one, I thought Arnie was a outspoken, a passionate, a vocal leader about issues. And as you point out, there are different styles of CEOs. I, I think in many ways, I'm following Arnie in that he knew it was important to speak about issues that our associates around the world cared about. And I've continued to do that. I think the other point you make, though, that really resonates with me, I've got a daughter in college and she's in hospitality school. And so I get the chance to speak with her. I speak to her classmates. And when these kids are coming out of school, our prospective future associates, they're human beings. So they care about job title. They care about pay. They care about those things. But they are selecting employers because they care so deeply about, I want to find an employer whose values and priorities are aligned with mine. And I think it's another reason that causes me to be thoughtful about those issues and those priorities uh, when I should use a platform like LinkedIn and, and share my point of view. Super interesting. And it's just fascinating to see how employees change executive actions. And I think that we often think of the, uh, of the business world as being people at the top are making decisions that affect everyone else, but it really is not a one-way street at all. Well, and Dan, I, I know you've spent time with many folks from Marriott. We're coming up on our 95th anniversary this year. And one of the core principles that Bill Marriott's father put in place was this notion of take care of your associates. Because if you take care of your associates, they'll take care of the guests and the guests will come back again and again. And that is a philosophy and an attitude that has served us so well for nearly a century. We've got to think about our associates. What makes them passionate? What makes them excited to get up and come to work every day? What makes them proud to be aligned with a company like Merit? And I think speaking out on some of these really weighty issues is, is one part of that, that calculus. Tony, I always like to end these with career advice. What do you say to people who come to you and say, hey, I don't even know what I want to do. How do you help them find a path? Yeah, I'd say three things. And uh, I want to give my friend Arnie full credit on the first two. I encourage them to be intellectually curious, uh, to ask questions, to read, to listen, to really understand. Second, I tell them to learn to be a good listener. It, it, unfortunately, I think for, for business and for the world, Active listening is a skill that's in short supply. So I always encourage them to be an active listener. And the other thing I tell them is to be optimistic. Prospective associates that are looking at our industry, they don't have the, the opportunity I have to look at all the data and to hear from hundreds and hundreds of guests a day. It is a fabulous industry. People love to travel. Since the dawn of time, the ability to explore new places, try new foods, immerse yourself in new cultures, conduct commerce in a face-to-face -face way, um, consummate a transaction by shaking hands. I, these are things that have driven travel for centuries. And while uh, current graduates coming out of school maybe aren't coming into exactly the environment they were helping for, there is extraordinary opportunity for them as they think about the ability to grow a really rewarding career in travel and tourism. That was Marriott CEO, Tony Capuano. To dive deeper into this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working. And be sure to click the little bell on my profile if you always want to get alerts for new posts. Tony talked a lot about the role Arnie Sorensen, his predecessor and his mentor played in his life. 
I know that stepping into anyone's shoes is difficult. And while he was talking, I was wondering, is it easier to do this for Tony because there is so much upheaval going on in the company and in the industry? Is it easier to step into someone's shoes when change is everywhere and you're just one part of the change? But I don't know the answer. I would love to hear from you. Have you ever had to fill the role of someone who was beloved at your company and now you were in charge? Let me know over on LinkedIn using the hashtag, this is working. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with a friend and rate us on your favorite podcast listening app. It helps so much. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Stephen Valdivia, Victoria Taylor, and Candace Weiner. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.